You're listening to Like Flint Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network. Well, welcome back to Like Flint Radio. This is GK. I'm coming to you live from atop the Great Dividing Range in Eastern Australia. Tonight, it's just me and my co-host, Andy Tate, who is on the line with me right now from the Western Cape in South Africa. Good evening, Andy. Hello, G. <laughs> well, this is unusual. We, um, we haven't done a Like Flint radio show together um, on our own. So um, what's going on? Where's the other boys? Well, Chrissy was going to join us today, but um, he just messaged me to say that he's not feeling too well. He had been uh, doing some work and stuff, but he's just finished and he's not feeling so lacquer. So we are going to try and do this without him, which is really tough because my jokes are not good at all. (laughs) And so (laughs) I don't really know how we're going to do it, but it's cool. And I believe Cliffy is traveling, so um, he would have joined us as well, I'm sure, if he could have, but he's also not available. He's probably climbing the steps of Ur of the Caldees as we speak. But anyway, (laughs) we'll find out when Cliff gets back to Istanbul uh, Mm -hmm. about his adventures, I guess. Yeah. So here we are with another Flint Flake show where we offer, you know, four different segments, totally different segments from each of us show host and then we were hoping to do an interview after that so go a flint flake show followed by an interview but it doesn't always work out like that because i think we've done flint flake shows uh two in a row and then we've done a couple of interviews but um that being said as you know andy we do have some great interviews lined up with some people that we've never spoken to before yeah um on either yeah on either this show or on future quake south africa Mm -hmm. or future quake southern hemisphere so i'm really excited and looking forward to those. But we do have a great show here in this episode. And the great thing about this is um, we also get to hear from Cliff twice in this episode because we did an ad hoc one with Cliff that I just hit record on. Quite often when when we speak, you go, oh, man, should hit record, like when me and you or often me and Cliff, you go, oh, wow, should hit record on. That was so good. So this time I did hit record, so we're going to use that in your flake, Andy. (laughs) Yes, that was actually very funny. But we'll talk more about that maybe a bit closer to the flick. Yeah, when we come to it. That was just great, the way that worked out. And and quite often in our shows, you know, we have a bit of humour. So obviously we'll be relying on you to fill in there, Andy. (laughs) As you've alluded to, that usually is Cruzy's spot. Mm -hmm. But we'll let you do the great jokes as we go along. So I look forward to that. Well, yeah, of course. I am, and I'm sure our audience is also looking forward to that. But um, we're going to go to our first flake now, and this will give you some time as we listen to this. This will give you some time to think of um, something hilarious for us at the end of it. But this is Cliff's uh, What Are You Reading This Week segment. Mm -hmm. I think this is segment five from the one book, The Occult Philosophy in the Elizabethan Age. Francis Yates. But anyway, um, it is a very interesting book. It's not long, as Cliff's pointed out, but I find it pretty packed with information. And when you're talking to Cliff, sometimes he is like opening a a dictionary or a history book or something. And this is probably my favourite part that we've done from this book, Andy, um, because 
I'm interested in John Dee, who was mm-hmm. uh, an aide to Queen Elizabeth the First. That's right. And du- yeah, and during this one, we talk about quite a few things that are of interest. One of the things we talk about is how the Catholics painted her as the whore of Babylon, whereas Dee claimed her to be the Virgin Queen. So he put that mythos out about her. And also during this one, we touch on the Book of Enoch. Now I know lots of other shows have done um, a, a lot, have lo- investigated uh, the Book of Enoch a lot, but I did throw it on to Cliff while we were on, uh, while we were doing this flake. So we do talk about the Book of Enoch because when Dee was doing his work with John Kelly, his um, scrying, as it's called. He also said that the uh, angels taught them the language of Enochian magic, or that was, and it was an angelic language, and they discussed Enochian magic. So because we were talking about Enoch, I asked Cliff his thoughts about the Book of Enoch. And also, Cliff said he's happy to take questions because he said he'd be very surprised if we haven't had any questions on this book, and especially, I think, on this episode. So if listeners have got questions, please write in and ask us. But anyway, enough of my waffle. We need to get to this because this is really good. So let's go to Cliff's What Are You Reading This Week? What are you reading this week? What are you reading this week? Builders operating in the background, Cliff. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah, that's the neighbourhood. <laughs> welcome, welcome to Istanbul. Can can we, if you've got time, can we move on to D? Um, sure, I find sure. him the most fascinating, and I suppose he'd be the more well-known person that we may discuss here as well. So, yeah, back, and, because and of his he, relationship uh, with Elizabeth um, the First and other things, but. Can you give us the background and, and then... Well, he's a really important character for the time period. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it was Walsingham. Uh, Walsingham was the uh, person who formed the uh, Secret Service. Uh, it rings a bell to me, but yes. I, I think it was, and, and he, was, uh, he was connected with him. Uh, and he, he did a lot to do with uh, things like uh, code making and things of that sort, and uh, that's how he got involved with, with the high politics. Uh, prior to that, he, he had been a, a professor. He was a professor of mathematics, just like Agrippa. He got involved with the uh, Kabbalah, and uh, he was fascinated by all sorts of uh, different sciences and uh, everything else. I mean, he was into archaeology, uh, not archaeology, but uh, architecture, excuse me, uh, which, uh, like I say, sacred numbers and things like this, uh, you know, one of the things you start seeing a lot of is uh, the idea of uh, God as a uh, great architect, uh, as a designer. Uh, God is a, uh, a builder, a, a maker of things, and, and you have a lot of fascination with numbers. The, what they did was they applied a lot of this numerology from the Kabbalah to Vitruvius and his geometry and geometry and architecture. And that, uh, that was a really important step in actually buildings, uh, building buildings, because the, the architecture of that time was quite remarkable. So this is kind of where you, you start to see your proto-Freemason stuff come up. I was going to mention that. Also, interestingly as well, because um, now Dee's library was huge, wasn't it, Cliff? Was it mm-hmm. the biggest or second biggest in the at the time? Am I... 
He had one of the biggest uh, libraries in the world, yeah, definitely. And, well, I'll read this here from the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was of Welsh descent and believed himself to be descended from an ancient British prince, even claiming some relationship to the Tudors and to the Queen herself. He associated himself intensely with the Arthurian, mythical and mystical side of the Elizabethan idea of British Empire. Yeah. Now, how about that? Oh, yeah. We're getting into King Arthur here. That's, and I know that's one of your specialties, so I couldn't resist reading that out. Well, that, that's <laughs> uh, that, that's uh, one of the things that I always kind of rather liked about Mr. D. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love Arthur. He spent a lot of time building a, uh, <clears throat> a myth around, uh, around the Tudors. And the Tudors were a Welsh house. The name is Welsh. Right, okay, yep. In fact, it was it was spelled uh, T-E-W-D-W-R. Right, which T- does sound very Welsh, doesn't it, in spelling? Yeah, it is very Welsh. And they they were Welsh uh, family, although, you know, they intermarried with uh, the Anglo, uh, Anglo-French and uh, German uh, nobilities of Europe. They were a Welsh family. I believe they were even related to Owen Glendower who uh, was uh, uh, actually uh, one of the last Welsh uh, rulers to rule Wales. And uh, he, he, he actually was the one that uh, maintained a guerrilla war that lasted through his lifetime, and after him it really kind of became a, a puppet state. But uh, I believe that uh, they were related to him as well. Uh the, yeah. When you look at the genealogy there, though, there, there's a lot of questions, uh, and it's probably partly made up. Right. Uh, they, they try to make it out that uh, they were related to the Saxon family that founded it. They make it out that they were related to Arthur and the uh, the Welsh that had it before. You know, it's kind of a, you know, both by conquest and by... Uh, uh, marriage that they uh, evened out all the problems. Yeah, uh, and you know, there's probably a certain amount of uh, truth in that because uh, when you start digging into the genealogies of the great families of Europe, uh, the intermarriage was so heavy that uh, hemophilia was a very common affliction. Yes, that's true. Yes, when you hear the people talking about the Merovingians, you know. And how significant they are, it's really kind of a joke. I mean, because uh, are they important to the the relationships between the different families of Europe? Well, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but when you get away from uh, the fact that they were there for that period of time, is there any proof of their survival? No. <laughs> None whatsoever. <laughs> So, right. right. So that uh, that whole holy blood, holy grail thing. I mean, you know, we get, we go back to it, and kind of almost have to because uh, it's the subject matter. Uh, that uh, the, the fallacies of that just they're never ending. Uh, now, now to switch gears totally, just for our listeners' yeah. sake, just for our listeners' sake. Um, I know you're a great lover of coffee, like many Americans. Are you currently making a cup of coffee, Cliff? Yes, I am. <laughs> Yes, I am. You, you heard me pouring the water. 
but, but uh, yeah, I, I'm making another cup. I've got to say, I, this is not the first time um, Cliff has made a cup of coffee. Um, during our discussions with him, I can tell you, I absolutely know he loves his coffee. Hey, listen, um, getting back yeah. to D and his library. Yeah. Yates also mentions that he possessed um, several copies of Agrippa's work, De Occulta Philosophia. Um, so yeah. therefore, obviously, um, across his works. And, yeah, um, he, yeah, he found that as, as uh, one of his uh, prime works to, to refer to uh, as far as Kabbalah went. And uh, he also uh, used a lot of those things in, in tandem with some other practices. Uh, one, of, one of the things that Dee uh, uh, had gotten a lot of copies of was uh, the different, uh, not only philosophical, but uh, magical works from the uh, Arabs uh, from Spain, uh, okay. you know, prior to the expulsion of yeah. the uh, Moors. A lot of his books go back uh, quite that far. And uh, he, he, I understand that he was quite into uh, what you call astral magic, which uh, was a practice that the, uh, that the Arabs rather liked. Actually, it was dealing with uh, the invocation of spirits and the making of certain talismans. You understand what I mean? Yeah, 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 I do, yeah. These are the sort of things that, you know, some of us might struggle with. Um, oh, yeah, big because, time. Because we, we, we see Queen Elizabeth, the first as being, you know, the, you know, the head of the church at the time, and oh yeah, oh and, yeah, and and John Dee is an advisor, but he's also, yeah, you know, he's a great mathematician, and uh, well, yeah, and all these other things. Dee, but like I said, Dee is probably more problematic than uh, than any of them, really. When we look at what Dee did in his travels, we we end up with a with a even bigger picture, but we, we still don't really get, uh, okay, he, he is ambiguous, you know, I, he is definitely ambiguous. But, but, but Cliff, we have these things like, like this, for example, um, mm -hmm. the, he, he was her advisor on um, scientific um, matters, but also astrological, right? And apparently... Oh, absolutely, he did horoscopes. Yes, and he uh, chose and he her, he chose her coronation date. Um, yeah. And the time. Right. What are we looking at here? Are we looking at here at a man of science? Are we looking here at a man of magic? Or is there, we can't say in this area that, that you know, that those two have gone, you know, that clearly defined? Um, what we have to do is we have to recognize that in that time, with mm -hmm. that context, yeah. the distinction was not there. Right. This is what I'm, this is what I'm driving at. Yeah, the distinction, the distinction was not there. There were people who always objected to certain occult practices. Okay? In that era as well? In that era and others. Uh, you had, uh, uh, in fact, uh, Yates writes a wonderful chapter about Marlowe okay. and witch hunting. Yes. And, yep. Uh, yep. and uh, the connection between uh, the, the higher magic of uh, people like Dee mm -hmm. and uh, also the, uh, the lower magic that most of the witches that were burnt uh, actually practiced. Uh, but the, the fact that, that, the, that the story of Dr. Faustus doesn't uh, approach the magic of the lower people, it's all, it's all D. And it's a very strong criticism. Uh, in, in fact, uh, it, one of the details that she mentions in there, and, and this, this is a very significant one, 
is that uh, Dr. Faustus's assistant uh, speaks with a Puritan accent. All right. Yeah. He has a Puritan sound to his voice when he speaks. Yeah, yeah. And the Puritans, uh, and this is something that uh, a lot of people haven't been aware of, but the Puritans did have a lot of ties to uh, these different movements that were going on. And, and it was partly because they were actually more of a Judaizing sect, and therefore they were more interested in things such as the Kabbalah. Right. And this, this, is, this is really uh, uh, kind of where we, we you know, look at the, some of the trends we see today, and we have to worry a bit about where they're trying to go with this. Yes, because it Especially is a theme. Kabbalah. Yes. Huh? yes, because I was going to say, it is a the theme of this book, isn't it? The yeah, Christ, it is. Christian, you know, Christian Kabbalah. Exactly. What the Christian Kabbalah, as it was formulated at the beginning, I don't mm-hmm. think is really so bad because it was based upon the Bible itself. Right. Okay. 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 That said, in as far as it was based on other works by the Jews, in as far as it was based on those things, it is clearly not right. So, you know, when we start talking about certain aspects of the Merkaba mysticism uh, that uh, was practiced by the Jews uh, even like in the 800s, 800 ADs, this is, this is part of a, a tradition that goes to the Talmud. Yeah. Uh, although it does, it does trace back to the Bible, but it goes through the Talmud in order to get there. So there, there's, a, there's a point where we have to wonder about the Christian Kabbalah itself, you know, because well, there, there, there's other things that have crept in. Well, in the Talmud, especially I think it's in the Babylonian Talmud, there are things in uh, there that are, are written and said about Jesus that we, we couldn't oh, even say. sick. Exactly. We couldn't say it on this show. So I, for I would, one... As I a, would put that in my mouth. Exactly. As a believer, I'd want nothing to do with it. So, um... Exactly, exactly, and and that's the thing uh, that that it really is the thing. Mm. Is there is there things in inside of the Kabbalah that are valid at, at the beginning? Now we're talking about before Lurianic Kabbalah that was that created Shabtai Tzvi. We we know that that's mm. clearly oh, yeah. wrong. Yeah, and, and and the things that followed after, uh, we really can't go there. Those are also not Christian. They, in fact, they're designed to make Christians and go away. Yes. Uh, because the original Kabbalah, when Christians looked at it, they, they could find enough in the Bible that they could convert the Jews. Right. Yes. And yes. there's a lot about numer- numerology and things like that. Okay, fine, I'm dandy. You know, I mean, some of it, some of it I can, I can accept <clears throat> up to a point. But it's still, it's still a thing that uh, has problems, and we can't, we can't just give it a clean bill of health. Right. Just can't do it. Agreed. It, Agreed. We can look at the people in the past that touched it, and we can see the casualties. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's that's really what we're looking at with Mister D here. Uh, we we see the casualties. We see the damage it has done. When we hear people, when we hear these people nowadays that are trying to bring back uh, some aspect of Judaism into Christianity, they're using the Kabbalah deliberately. Yes. We have to come out and say that they are wrong. Cliff. With with D now let's I, I want to okay. nail something down here and and see what your thoughts right. are. Um, now we know that he wanted to be in contact with um, you know with the spirit world, right? 
So he, he yeah, yeah, he, no, that's that's really where he got in trouble, <laughs> right? And and he did this through the um, what they called scrying. Scrying, scrying is? Uh, is very similar to certain um, uh, aspects of crystal gazing, right? Okay. And he had linked up with uh, Kelly, who was yes. uh, was an expert at this. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, Kelly was a medium, basically. Right. Yeah. And he got into trouble with Elizabeth. They cut his ears off. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. Kel- oh, Kelly's yeah. Ears uh, 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 Umberto Echo uh, has a part where uh, where his character is pretending to be uh, uh, to be uh, Kelly and talks oh. about how his hat fits over his ears and stuff. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and but, yeah, he had his ears cut off because he had, uh, he had slandered Elizabeth. He wore a conic hat. Right. <laughs> now, the thing about Kelly is I, I really kind of have some doubts that Kelly was actually terribly loyal to uh, 2D. Let's put this into kind of a perspective here. Uh, Dee started off in England with serving uh, Elizabeth. He promoted the uh, the legend of uh, the Virgin Queen, the queen who dominates the world and all yeah. this stuff, right? Yeah. And he is promoting uh, English superiority and conquest of the world is what he's yeah. really proposing. Right. Whereas, and if you look at the propaganda against her mm-hmm. in Spain, mm-hmm. they're presenting her as the whore of Babylon. Oh, <laughs> yeah, they are. And yeah. this is really kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, so they're presenting her as the whore of Babylon, and she's the, the whore that's on all the, all the, the mountains and all this stuff. Yes. And, uh, and, of course, they're presenting the king of Spain as the Antichrist himself. <laughs> and uh, the Pope is the false prophet. I mean, this that's really what this is all about. Uh, they've, they've got their own apocalypses written here. And so when Dee goes to uh, Bohemia in particular, he's bringing this agenda uh, with him. And, and, and he's, he sees this as an apocalypse. And part of it is these prophecies that he's been pulling out of the air, him and Kelly. And, and like I keep saying, a false prophecy. You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> the, the, all these false prophecies that have, have, have molded and shaped uh, Europe and uh, and Christendom, no less. That uh, we we have to we have to kind of stand back and look at that and go, there's something messed up here. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely. So uh he he had uh, was trying to trying to bring about a unification between england and uh, the the holy roman empire you know with um d using kelly as the as the link is, is that right between him and the yeah. the angels that were dictating and yeah. writing the books now the language is supposed to be called he called it enochian language didn't he exactly has that got anything absolutely at all? Was he reflecting back on the Book of Enoch and the Watchers or anything like that? Yeah, he was. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, he was. Uh, uh, one of the things about uh, Enoch, mm-hmm. uh, he, he got a lot of credit for uh, being a, a great magician. They tried to make Adam into it, but Adam, uh, Adam always came off as just a little bit too primitive. Mm-hmm. And so the, the next one that you can really point to and say, this man knew something that other people didn't know, it had to be Enoch, mm-hmm. because he was with God, and uh, he was always with God, and then he suddenly wasn't, yeah. right, because God took him. 
that mystery itself uh, is enough to make him into a very um, interesting character, to say the least. But but the thing is, is that books of magic have been written about Enoch for for centuries. In fact, millennia. We have uh, the book of Enoch that we know was in currency at the time of Christ. Okay, and and we're, we're we're on pretty good ground when we say that the that uh, some of the Bible writers uh, quoted. Sure. Yes. And and we're on good ground when we talk about saying okay, the even even when we look at a possibility. Okay, and it's still a speculation, but it's a it's a good speculation because it does relate to the Bible itself. We're using the Bible as the filter. Okay, yeah. And when we do that, we're on pretty good ground. So we're talking about and, Book of Jude here, aren't we? And um, is it second? Yeah, time? exactly. But the only quotes and only real true references to mm. to the Book of Enoch mm. only occur in the Book of Enoch in the Book of the Watchers. Right. Yes. That's the only part. The other parts are highly questionable. Right. So just because they might have cited the, the Book of the Watchers doesn't mean the whole book is fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah I agree with that. Uh, yes, I'm on board uh, with that. that, uh, that that's where a lot of people get in a lot of problems. But the Enochian uh, is, is angelic. Uh, one of the kind of pseudo-Gnostic uh, beliefs that got kicked around uh, through the Middle Ages was that Enoch was the angel Metatron. Yes. Yeah, well, that comes from, uh, I think, the third, third book of Enoch. Right, yeah. So, you know, you, you get into some really, really bizarre stuff with uh, the Enochian-type magic. And, and it, it's very significant that he used that. Because it had a, they had their own language and alphabet and everything, didn't they? Um, Absolutely. Yes. And seals and symbols and everything yep. else. Yep. Uh, each, uh, each planet had a different symbol, uh, seal. And, and and when you look at that magic, and you look at some of the other uh, the other grimoires, you know that uh, that deal with the same types of subjects, uh, it, it gets pretty pretty creepy. You're you're getting away f- increasingly from a, from a legitimate uh, contemplation mysticism to where you're getting into practices in which you're exercising your will. You, you notice the emphasis there. Where you're actually emphasizing your will to achieve a purpose that might not be clearly uh, physically uh, connected to the physical world and might have a spiritual origin, which uh, would, I think, be a pretty fair uh, description of magical practice. So instead of uh, bending your will to the will of the Lord to enact a, a good deed, uh, maybe a healing or prayer, that what you're doing is you're trying to force your will upon the world to do what you want it to do. So that's why we are in worship in, in spirit and in truth. Exactly. I, I couldn't agree with, agree with you more. Um, with this um, act of scrying, it was what we would, in, in modern-day parlance, say they were gazing into a crystal ball. Is that right? More or less, yeah. Sure. Uh, it, it, he he was using an object that he could focus his uh, his attention upon and actually blank out. Uh, it sort of hypnotize himself. Right. Dragon has also used metal objects and uh, things like the bowl of water. Mm-hmm. So this is this is uh, Kelly, isn't it? That that did the, yeah yeah. Kelly is the Kelly is the medium. Yes. 
Well, while they're in Bohemia, one of the things that Kelly does is he, he, he gazes into his little, little scrying crystal, and he says that the angelic uh, forces told him that, that uh, Dee needs to let him sleep with uh, Dee's young wife. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, and Dee can, uh... can have his old lady, too, if he yes. wants her. Yes, no, I find that. Yeah, no, that's uh... You gotta wonder if he uh, was really getting that from the spirits or if he was just kind of looking around a little bit too closely personally. Yeah, no, it's an abhorrent part of the story that um, <laughs> Kelly convinced him because Dee went for it, didn't he, that they would share yeah. their wives, right? Oh, yeah, I believe first. it. That's uh, what I mean, like the singer. Yeah, so you can just see, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on here where perhaps he was using it for his, you know, personal... Oh, event. I believe he was. Yeah, Kelly. I, I believe, Ke- I believe Kelly had, had had a hard enough life. Uh, mm. You know, I mean, he, he fell afoul of the law politically, uh, but also because he was considered a scam artist. Right, yes. But he did have this reputation as being a great scryer. That's why that's why Dee linked up with him. But it was after and, that event uh, that um, Dee broke off relations with Kelly, wasn't it? He, he must have woke up. Eventually they did. Uh, I, I think the embarrassment probably about killed him. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just, uh, I, I mean, he made him look like a fool. Yes, and and he was. Mm. He was a fool. Mm. I mean, you know, he, I mean, he's look, he's going around scrying. You know? mm. I mean, th- this is something that uh, doesn't take a take a whole lot to figure out that uh, it's not a great idea. You know, exactly. It's not like uh, certain aspects of astrology where you know this isn't you know forbidden outright you know it's uh it's uh something that that really isn't allowed uh and and divination of the future is is not a good idea anyway no no and and i'm glad we've touched on that a number of times all righty well i can see we're we're out of time there cliff so we're going to have to leave it there um are you happy for to answer questions if people send in have got any questions about this topic Oh, I'd be delighted to take people's questions on this, Great. really, about anything else. Great, because some of these are tough topics for many of us as believers to um, to chew on, and um, no. I, I would be would be um, I wouldn't be surprised if people had questions. So, if you do have questions, uh, you can. I suppose they didn't. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, um, so there you go. Cliff's happy happy to take questions. Well, Cliff, thanks for letting me be part of your Flint Flake, and until next time... Oh, my pleasure. You're always good to talk to you, man. Thank you. God bless, and goodbye. (laughs) Okay, so you know the one. Horse walks into the bar. Bartender (laughs) says, why the long face? You know, come on. You can do that one. No, Chrissy's already done that one, but thank you. Oh! Oh! I could offer um, the origin of the word hilarious, which derives from the word hilarious. Mm. And the Greek, that's the Latin word, hilarious, and the Greek hilaros, which apparently is cheerful. But I do believe it probably dates back to something to do with, uh, uh, let's just say, gynecological issues. But you go and check that out. That's the best I can do right now. Wow, I'm, I don't find that particularly hilarious. That's <laughs> amazing. Not, no. No. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs>
All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I'm glad you came up with something hilarious to bring us out of that one. You That's did well. That's a pleasure. That's a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway, so there's our probably that is going to be our final. Now that's not the end of the book. There were a few other um, topics we could have done, but Cliff is keen to move on to other another book, and okay. um, I'm not sure. Maybe our our listeners might be ready to move on too. I do yeah. like the book. I would have liked to continue, but Cliff said let's move on to something else. So um, cool. his segment will probably be on a different book next time. He has given me a couple of. Uh, ideas of what he's reading and um one of them is very interesting but with cliff as you know he reads several books at the same time mm-hmm. and by the time you get there he could have easily switched to something else so i won't i won't quote the book he was thinking of <laughs> okay no that's cool he i know he's always got uh something on the go when he's reading so he's got he's got more than one but um yeah. hey look um next up we're going to do gk's greek spot mm-hmm. and today we're going to be talking about imperatives and hmm. i know that since you're a latin genius i wanted to ask you <laughs> does, oh, sorry, does latin hilarious. use that's hilarious right there that was no, there you go. that's hilarious very go. good good use of the word <laughs> hilarious yes. does does latin use imperatives as far as i know yes it does it does use imperatives okay <laughs> so here we go this is gk's greek spot imperatives and after this we'll come back and you've got a bit of an information about where people can go and learn some greek andy because we have had a couple of people ask but anyway okay. here's gk's greek spot ki epitimesen altu ho jesus legon phimothoti ki excelthe exaltu and jesus rebuked him saying be quiet and come out of him Hello and welcome to GK's Greek Spot. In this episode we're going to be talking about imperatives. Now the New Testament Greek uses, for the most part, four different moods. There is another one, but it's quite rare. In this segment we're going to focus on the imperative mood. The imperative mood is used to bring about action that can only happen by the exercising of one person's will upon another. The easiest way but not the only way to understand this is when we when we give a command like go here do this etc now there are different types of imperative moods used in the new testament and we'll be looking at the difference between just two of them and we'll do that by giving a couple of examples so we can get a bit of an idea of what we're talking about here what are these imperatives um let's look at luke chapter 6 verse 8 and it says arise and come forward now this is an aorist imperative which denotes a command sometimes urgent that doesn't focus upon continuation or frequency so stand up and come here just as simple as that now imperative used with a sense of command are the most commonly used in the new testament but not the only ones but they are the most common um another type of imperative that we're going to look at is um well best to give an example again so let's look at Romans 12 verse 14 and it says bless those who persecute you now this is a present imperative now this indicates a command or a request to do some, something and to do it repeatedly so if for example here we have bless those who persecute you you could say continue to bless those who persecute you so it's not just a once off so i hope you're getting the idea here and i'm happy to take any questions you might have on uh on imperatives but Let's have a look at another couple of examples that I've found in the New Testament that will flesh this out just a little bit more using our two types of imperatives. 
Um, one good one, because there's a lot to it, is 1 Peter 1, verse 16. And it says, Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now this one, as far as I can ascertain, is a present imperative. So it means to continue to be holy. And you can also see in the English translation that I've used here, which is the NASB, you get that sense of future. You shall be holy. And I think most imperatives have that sense about them because it's a command. It's something one person is telling or requesting another to do. So it has a sense that the action will take place after the request, in the future. Um, and I hope that makes sense. But, you know, if I had said to you... Um, you shall be holy. Obviously, it, it has a futurist sense about it because, I mean, you know, you haven't heard what I've commanded you to do just yet. Um, so you're about to put it into practice. Okay, so 1 Peter 1.16, you shall be holy for I am holy, um, is a present imperative. Now let's have another look at an aorist type imperative. And this is a good one. This is from Mark one verse 25 and this is the one that I read at the beginning of my segment here and Jesus rebuked him saying be quiet and come out of him now this is as I said an aorist imperative so it's a command and so Jesus is saying be quiet and he meant it it wasn't a suggestion um, and the word that our imperative comes from um, means to be muzzled so Jesus was saying be muzzled and I suppose in modern parlance, we might say to one another, shut up. In other words, I'm telling you to be quiet, and I mean it. I'm not messing around. And and it has that sense about it, and you can really see that when you understand that it's this is an imperative, and Jesus isn't messing, messing around here. He means what he says. Okay, so let's recap here before we finish up. You have um, a couple of different types of imperatives that we talked about. We know that they're for the most part, used with a futurist sense, and that they are about command, about requesting, commanding, or can I say, you know, using one person's will on another um, to perform an action. And we said that we have aorist imperatives, which are just a straightforward command, um, like sometimes urgent, you must obey what I'm saying here right now. And then we had the other type, which is a... A present imperative. So that means it's something that I want you to do, but continue doing it. Like we said in our Romans 12 uh, example, continue to bless those who persecute you. Don't just bless them once, continue to do it. Anyway, I hope that's been clear and I hope you enjoyed that and I hope it encourages you all to dig deeper into your Bible. So for now, I'll just say God bless you and bye-bye now. Alrighty, so there you go, imperative. So, Andy, you had a bit of an announcement to make. Oh, yeah. Well, gee, you studied Greek with uh, Dr. Michael Heiser. His um, online course can be found at Memra, um, memraonline.com. And I see he's got new classes starting on Greek 
Hebrew and also Ugaritic. And I think those classes start 1st of August, but he's also offering a really good discount if you sign up before the 4th of July. So um, I really do encourage you to go and check that out. But do you want to tell us a little bit about your experiences doing Greek with him? Because it's a year course, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is. I can highly recommend it. If you're interested in studying the New Testament a lot closer than you may have before, I highly recommend it. And I do recommend doing it with Dr. Heiser. You will be using a, a well-known textbook, but also Mike gives you um, videos to go through the course with as well. So he helps you all along, along the way. And also with questions that you might have, like there's some classes I believe you take and, you know, you don't, you don't get opportunity for a, uh, question and answers. But with Mike, he's very, very open to students asking questions, which is great, so that, you know, you don't feel like a, a noodle for asking questions either. And yeah. like I say, if you're interested, I'm highly recommending Mike's course in Greek, indeed in Hebrew as well, which I haven't done yet. So Yeah, so definitely go check that out. That's um, memraonline.com. All right. Well, since we've mentioned in Greek, can we also talk about another ancient language, Andy? Um, can you tell us a bit about your Latin course? Um, because you're currently <laughs> learning a bit of Latin, aren't you? And that's why I asked the question earlier. Um, I, I'm attempting to, gee. I, I can't honestly say that I'm doing it as much as I should be. But I did mm -hmm. come across a really fun website and um, I got hold of their courses and I'm actually really enjoying just the way that they're teaching. He is teaching to a younger audience, so I suppose um, just high school, I guess, high school level. But I just really enjoy him. His name's Dwayne Thomas and that's at Compass Classroom. Dot com. So I would say go check them out. They've got some really great um, courses there as well. And I find a little bit of Greek and a little bit of Latin is actually handy in this modern age because a lot of legal terms are couched in Latin and a lot of uh, medical terms are in Greek. And if you have an understanding of some of the basic uh, root words, you can understand sometimes what your doctor or your lawyer is talking about. So there you go. But anyway. You'll also be able to speak to your plants because they also have Latin names and they would really appreciate that, yes. So they, they'll <laughs> appreciate that because obviously they all speak Latin as well because they have that's Latin right. names, right? Yes, that's right. Anyway, enough of this silliness. <laughs> let's, let's move on to your flake. Andy, can you tell us what that's going to be about and how Cliffy and I ended up <laughs> doing the discussion segment on that? So I'll let, I'll let you talk about that. Well, I was going to do a little reading from Eusebius, and we were just chatting about it the one day, what I was thinking about doing. And I think I even just read it off to you, something like that. And at the same time, we had invited Cliff to come and join us just for a little chat. It was just really, how are you doing? How's everybody? You know, it was just one of a kind of catch-up chats. So because we were just chatting about this, I think you <laughs> just asked Cliff, um, what he knew about it. Now, that's always a dangerous thing to do. I'm learning this. I don't know if you've learned that yet. But mm -hmm. it's just, you know, the likelihood is that he's going to have a whole lot to say about it. So outside of just the fact that I could not pronounce half the names that were in this very short reading, I hope you do enjoy the fact that this just kind of happened and you'll pick that up as well. So I think it's probably best to just say this is going to be coffee time with Cliff <laughs> and GK as they're talking about what my little reading 
was. And stick with it because the quality does ebb and flow a little bit of the sound quality, does ebb and flow a bit. I edited this and I did my best to make it sound good, but also um, keep an ear out for the Turkish wedding happening in the background. So um, (laughs) that also adds a bit of colour to the discussion. So um, anyway, so let's listen to that one. Um, I think you'll enjoy this. This is great. When James the Righteous had suffered martyrdom like the Lord, and for the same reason, Simeon, the son of his uncle Clopas, was appointed bishop. He being a cousin of the Lord, it was the universal demand that he should be the second. They used to call the church a virgin for this reason, that she had not yet been seduced by listening to nonsense. But the Boothius, because he had not been made bishop, began to seduce her by means of the seven sects, to which he himself belonged, among the people. From these came Simon and his Simononians, Cleobus and his Cleobians, Dothius and his Dosathians, Gorthius and his Gorathians, and the Mathbothians. From these were derived the Menandrists, Marcanists, Carpocratians, Valentinians, Basidilians, and Saturnilians every man introducing his own opinion in his own particular way. From these in turn came false Christs, false prophets, false apostles, who split the unity of the church by poisonous suggestions against God and against his Christ. Egypius also names the sects that once existed among the Jews. There were various groups in the circumcision among the children of Israel, all hostile to the tribe of Judah and the Christ. They were the Essenes, the Galileans, the Hemerobaptists, Mathbathians, Samaritans, Sadducees, and Pharisees. Yeah, so have you got a party going on in the background there out in the street, Cliff? Um, oh, you're still no, drumming. That's, that's what I was, I was telling you about the drums earlier. Is it a wedding? That's a wedding. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll move. It's a bit near the. Maybe you can hear the horns. Because they got. They got horns going, too. That, yeah, that's wedding. That, that, that's, a, that's a Turkish wedding. It's just right around the corner. <laughs> well, we won't keep you too long <laughs> so, you, so you can go and join in, but. Um... <laughs> this reading that Andy did is by this guy. He, um, it, you know, it's quoted in Eusebius, but it's um, his name is Hegesippus. Do you know? You heard of him before? Yeah, Hegesippus. Yeah, yeah. He's he's uh, the original Jews for Jesus. <laughs> I did say that. It's true. But, but he was he was a convert right about the same time as a. You know, you, you look at you look at the time period there. You, you know, the, the, you're talking the early or mid second century, right? Because you got uh, yeah. you got Valentinian, you got Marcion, yep. you got uh, you got Tertullian, you got uh, just so many really talented and interesting people of all stride, and, and, and you can actually see them in a modern light, you know, like if they were here, they would still be arguing the same ways, basically about the same doctrines. Yeah, but he's the guy, he's the guy writing against these other sects, but he also writes, um, he he, he also mentions, um, yeah, the Essenes, the Galileans, um, some I can't pronounce, but, but, yes, and also the Sadducees and the Pharisees he he, he writes against. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, he he is a mess around. Yeah. 
Yeah, Hedges Sippets, though. Yeah, he's, he's an interesting fella. He he does expound a, a what is the what we call orthodox doctrine. Right, you know, the, right. The, the core, the core belief that has been maintained since the beginning. Yeah, and and he does a fine job of it, and and he sh- it really kind of shows where the line is, you know, or li- where it should be, or well, maybe not where it should be, but where he sees it being. And and his his opinion is actually quite good. Uh, I, I I I like him. <laughs> I think it's hard not to, you know. Yes. Look at where he came from, you know. He's a Jewish guy. He converted at this time period of all times. Yeah. And and he gives a really good snapshot of what's going on, mm. which is a, which is beautiful. But Marcion, Marcion, what he did is he took a, an essential uh, Gnostic uh, Gnostic god. And, uh, and made it a, more of a theology than, a, than an actual experiential religion that, that most of the Gnostics were. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. He, he, he fixed the canon using nothing but Paul. Paul probably uh, lost out on the, the, uh, the arguments uh, in the early church because you, you find a lot, of, uh, a lot of legalistic kind of thinking in the church. Mm-hmm. It, you know, what we see documented. It isn't like it's as bad as it could have been. I mean, they're they're definitely a step away from the from the, the Jewish religion, mm-hmm. but but they were really big on penances. That that was one of the things, you know, that Christ uh, paid the penalty. That's right. And so when they started bringing in all this, okay, you had since you sinned, you had to pay more penalty. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's the deal here? Well, well, part of it was probably to prove that they belonged in the church with people. Know, just to gain, regain their trust, but the, but there was this this idea that uh, sprouted up uh, through that that, uh, that by doing good works you can erase bad works, and and so Marcion what he did uh, by taking Paul was that he was taking something that they weren't really putting their emphasis on, from what I understand. But I know he took the essential um, teachings of the Gnostics and he he turned it into theology. He really made a theology with it, and he wasn't so much worried about getting people to come to a, uh, a cosmic state of mind. Actually, an anti-cosmic state of mind really is what uh, the Gnostics were about. They were they were teaching uh, that uh, the Creator was an evil being, and that uh, the flesh is an evil thing and juxtaposed to spirit, uh, whereas. The church has never really taught that. It's, it's been more that the flesh might war with the spirit, but the spirit uh, and, and flesh are together. Uh, the, the, the idea is to get the flesh under control to where it follows the spirit. The Gnostics, it's a splitting. It's a, you, you, you split the two. They're, they're not only at war with each other, but they're, they're not even... Well, this life is not to be valued. Period. And whereas with the church, this life is significant because it leads to the next one. Uh, Cliff, this um, Marcionism is uh, mid 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 second century. As you mentioned, um, he taught, and then his followers also believed that Jesus Christ was the Savior sent by God, and Paul of Tarsus was his chief apostle. But he rejected the Hebrew Bible and the God of Israel. They believed that the wrathful Hebrew God was a separate and lower entity than the all forgiving. God of the New Testament. So you're right in saying that it's very similar to the 
Gnostic Christian belief, so um, that was spot on. Do you have any idea who the Carpocratians were? Carpocratians, yeah, they were uh, they were one of the uh, Gnostic sects. Uh, they were uh, too, eh? Well, they, they were Gnostic sect, uh, I think, from Bithynia, which is, uh, well, right over across the way on the other side of the Bosphorus. Uh, that's the, the, they're from over there. I mean, that's Nicomedia and uh, all that whole area. But I think he was from uh, further inland, if I'm not mistaken. More really aesthetic, where you know you punish your body and stuff. Ah, uh, okay. Thing. Yeah. I think I, I could be wrong. I, I know the Nazis were libertines. They were the snake the, with the snake, because that's serpent, and and they were they were somewhere in the east. Uh, I think from here, way in the east. And there was Basilides. Uh, he was, no, he was more uh, he was more philosophical, like Valentinian. Right, because I was going to ask you about the Valentinians and the Basilidians. Um, yeah, Basilidians and the Valentinians. They, they were both uh, really interesting. Basil came later, I think. I think he was actually Valentinian's uh, student. Okay. Or it might be the other way around. Uh, but I, I, I think I think it's Valentinian then then Basilides. And they, they they were more of a philosophical, you know, very mystical group. And uh, Valentinian was very close to the church, the established church. And he peeled off members from it. But with Carpocrates, I think he was a bit earlier, and, and I'm really sure he was from around here. And more I think about it, the more I think he was really strict uh, on the flesh. You know, this, this is where you're talking about guys that wouldn't eat for, you know, like a month or something, you know. Yeah. You know, this incredible fasting and uh, the flagellum. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask you, you know, in this list of you know, heretics that came from these ones in this reading, um, this is an interesting one, and I can only guess at this, um, and thanks for your time, because it's sort of like, opening up a dictionary when I talk to you, but um, the Saturnilians. Oh, Syrian Gnosticism. Okay. Uh, he, he was, uh, uh, Justin Martyr was up against him. Him and the, uh, the Marcians and the Vassalidians and Valentinians. Uh, those are all kind of uh, all, all together there, apparently. Looks like uh, Saturninus was uh, in Antioch. So there's, uh, there's, there's your, there's your, uh, Link and and uh, what I see here, uh, this is on sacred text, uh, okay. sacred uh, uh, hyphen text dot com. Yeah, uh, they they're saying here that uh, that development of the Nazis or the Ophites, you know, I was talking about them, but they were the ones that were uh, really into the uh, uh, antinomian kind of thing, where there's no rules and stuff. Actually, uh, practicing amorality in order to gain a uh, gain a, a, a mystical state that, that's the weird thing I mean there, there's a, you, you have you have a, these two extremes with the uh, with the Gnostics you, you have the one extreme of which they're they're punishing the flesh to such a degree mm. that their you know self-abnegation is just so extreme that uh, it, it's actually kind of sad. Then you have the other side that they party and 
swap wives and do all kinds of crazy stuff, you know. Then they they have a they have a good old time, and uh, that's other the other side of it. There's no there's no middle in this that uh, that you really have a tendency towards one or the other, and and, it, and it's because you have this extreme uh, division between flesh and spirit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. There, there, like I said, there's all these different groups, and you get they they borrow from each other, they uh, really steal from each other, little little bits and pieces. Supposedly, Simon Magus was was the root of this, and according to what I understand of his doctrine, there was he, he himself. He was he was the emissary from God. Uh, and he found this woman, his, his painted lady, as it were. Hmm. Uh, she was his Sophia. She was his uh, wisdom, the divine wisdom that uh, that mistakenly worked with the Demiurge to create the earth, and now uh, she's doing her penance by becoming human in, in this case. And, and he had her tagging around with him uh, all through his travels. And there's legends that he went to Rome, but there's others, too, that, that he went went around and basically made a lot of money by perpetuating this uh, this doctrine that he had. And, it, it, and basically it's a, it's a magical doctrine in, in which you have a, a, a basically the Demiurge is, a, is a, an idiot god it creates that the real God is beyond, right? And, and and that kind of that kind of teaching was kind of gestating not too long before the time of Christ's birth, and uh, so you know this is where you you start seeing groups uh, some some Hebrew but some other types as well that they're, they're kind of a Neoplatonic um, philosophies that. Uh, Really, really, they're 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 dabbling with magic, and uh, they're 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 practicing uh, uh, different types of uh, of mysticism and uh, meditation, uh, and there's the, a lot of uh, a lot of fasting and things like this. So some people think the Essenes were a group like this. Well, he mentions here the the Essenes. I wanted to ask you about them because I know that um, it's believed that. Uh, the uh, remnants of Qumran there has met, you know, as uh, yeah. an Essene colony, um, and was more or less displayed as such when I was there myself. Um, but right. you know, then, then I've right. seen arguments against it, and and so on and so forth, and backwards and forth. But well, there, I, I, I don't think we know a whole lot, really. No, you know, what, no, we we can guess a certain amount of things. Hmm. See the problem with trying to make them into Gnostics is that they're not—they don't have that anti-cosmic uh, theology in which the Creator is evil. That's not there. Mm. That's there. You know, right. people try—they try as hard as they do. It still comes out that they, they're still, in, at some level, Orthodox uh, Jews. Uh, so that. Uh, that does make a big difference. I mean, they, they, they still believe that God is the, the creator, that the God of the Israel is the, is a good God. Uh, but they do have a problem with the temple. 
Yeah, because they they escaped Jerusalem is the the theory, isn't it? They they wanted to separate from the rest of Judaism, and that's why they ended up on the on the Dead Sea at Qumran. But sorting yeah, well, out, it's, it's almost want to call it Babylon, but they don't. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and that's that's really kind of I think where where we're going with that. Whatever the Essenes were, they they were not not. No, no. They were, they were an attempt at purifying uh, the 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 beliefs of the ancient beliefs of the Hebrews. They they were kind of like uh, the, the the repeated waves in in Christianity that wants to get back to the original church. Yeah. Just like the Holy Grail, though, the, is, is it the quest that's more important or the finding? Because they don't find it. It's like the, this this thing that is lost. It's going to stay lost. But, but is there a value in looking for it or not? Well, I think there's a value in looking for it, but how far do you go with that? Because once you get into certain places, then you're, you're actually turning it into something that's not, you know? You're, you're inverting the value. Mm. wondering if I shouldn't read an article that I was sent via email. It's from the Charisma magazine and it's by J. Lee Grady, but it's quite an interesting one and I just thought perhaps we could add it to the discussion of what we've just read with Eusebius. It is taking the charismatic uh, perspective, obviously, but I just thought it is something that I think as a charismatic myself, these are things that we should really consider and look at because I think he makes some really good points. So here we go. He says, I will never apologize for being a charismatic Christian. I had a dramatic experience with the Holy Spirit many years ago and nobody can talk me out of it. At the same time, I'm aware that since the charismatic movement began in the 1960s, people have misused the gifts of the Spirit and twisted God's word to promote strange doctrines or practices. Seeing these errors never caused me to question the authenticity of what the Holy Spirit had done in my life, but I knew I had to stay true to God's word and reject any false teachings I encountered. My simple rule is based on 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 to 22, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, abstain from every form of evil. In other words, eat the meat and spit out the bones. As I have traveled throughout the body of Christ in recent years, I've experienced the good, the bad, and the ugly. I love God's people, and I know there is a healthy remnant of spiritual churches that are striving to stay grounded in biblical truth. But I also know we have reached a crossroads. We must clean up our act. We must jettison any weird doctrines we might have believed or practiced that are hindering our growth today. Here are a few of the worst errors that have circulated in our movement in the past season. You may have others that need to be added to this list. I believe we are grieving the Holy Spirit if we continue to practice these things. 1. Touch not my anointed. Chances are you've heard this weird doctrine based on 1 Chronicles 16.22. In an attempt to discourage any form of disagreement in the church, insecure leaders tell their members that if they ever question church authority, they are touching the Lord's anointed and in danger of God's judgment. Let's call this what it is, spiritual manipulation. 
It creates worse problems by ruling out healthy discussion and mutual respect. Church members end up being abused or controlled or even blacklisted because they dare to ask a question. 2. Dual Covenant We Charismatics love and respect Israel. Some of us even incorporate Jewish practices in our worship, such as wearing prayer shawls, blowing chauffeurs, or celebrating Hebraic feasts. These things can enrich our Christian experiences, but some leaders go too far when they begin to teach that Jews don't need to believe in Jesus Christ to experience salvation. They imply that Jews have special access into heaven simply because of their ethnic heritage. This is a flagrant contradiction of everything the New Testament teaches. 3. Inaccessible Leadership in the 1980s, some charismatic ministries began to teach pastors and traveling ministers that in order to protect the anointing, they must stay aloof from people. Ministers were warned never to make friends in their congregations. Preachers began the strange practice of skipping worship on Sunday mornings and then appearing on the stage only when it was time for the sermon in order to make a dramatic entrance. Shame on these people for attempting to justify arrogance. Jesus loved people and he made himself available to them. So should we. 4. Armor Bearers the same guys who developed item number three started this strange fad. Preachers began the practice of surrounding themselves with an entourage. One person to carry the briefcase, another person to carry the Bible, another to carry the handkerchief. Some preachers hired bodyguards, even food tasters. The armor bearers were promised special blessings if they served preachers who acted like slave owners. Reminder, true leaders are servants, not egomaniacs. 5. The Hundredfold Return Before his death in 2003, Kenneth Hagin Sr., the father of the faith movement, rebuked his own followers for taking prosperity teaching to a silly extreme. In his book, The Midas Touch, he begged preachers to stop misusing Mark 10, 28-30 to suggest that God promises a hundredfold return on every offering we give. Hagen wrote, If the hundredfold return worked literally and mathematically for anyone who gave an offering, we would have Christians walking around with not billions or trillions of dollars, but quadrillions of dollars. Hagen taught that the hundredfold blessing refers to the rewards that come to those who leave all they have to serve God in ministry. 6. Money cometh. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for giving money publicly to be seen by others. Yet in the 1990s, some charismatics got the wild idea that God would release a magical blessing if we would drop wads of dollar bills at the preacher's feet while he was in the middle of his sermon. Leroy Thompson of Louisiana popularized this flamboyant practice with his infamous 1996 sermon, in which he encouraged people to shout in King James English, Money cometh to me now. Then the people would run to the front of the auditorium to pour cash into his coffers. The money came for sure, and more cash-hungry preachers jumped on the bandwagon. Taking an offering became a form of exhibitionism, and Christians began viewing their offerings like lottery scratch-offs. God requires holiness not just in our behavior, but also in our doctrine. Let's discard these and any other foolish teachings that have brought confusion and dishonor to the body of Christ. So what do you think of that, Gene? Well, I'm glad you found that one. That's very interesting because there's nothing like 
uh, can I say, a sect being critiqued by their own. So I like it when, say, Calvinists critique their own, Charismatics or Pentecostals critique their own. Uh, so that was uh, great. Now, I had heard about that before somewhere, but I, I hadn't actually read that one. But I noticed as you were reading it, I went and looked at the Bible verses because um, not only does it tie in with our Eusebius flake and yeah. reading, but it also ties in with our Greek flake because that portion of Scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5, let's say from 1 Thessalonians 5.16 at least up until 5.23, mm-hmm. is full of imperatives. How good is that? Nearly each verse has an imperative in it. So there you go. And now we've all learnt together what imperatives are. And um, I think we're going to talk about another imperative that came from that portion of Scripture. And and that's why I was amazed that that was the portion that you were going to read that came with that article, because we wanted to talk a little bit about prayer. And I was going to say, look, Hmm. um, to go with our imperative teaching, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17 in NASB says, pray without ceasing. But that is actually an imperative. Hmm. Constantly pray. Pray continually. It has the weight of a command. And Hmm. so do the following um, number of verses, as I pointed out, because as you mentioned earlier, we probably should be praying for Cruzy because he's not well. But um, there are a lot of people that we know uh, who need prayer, including um, all of us on the show. So it would be good if we could ask people to pray for us and pray for the show. And please join us in our Facebook group if you if you like to. We we do have a bit of a prayer thread that goes there occasionally if you need prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's lots of prayer warriors are, that are in there that are happy to pray for you. Yeah. Um, so please do that. But Maybe we should just mention mm. the Facebook group uh, name is Future Quake Southern Hemisphere, if you're looking for it. So just so that you're not confused uh, by the name. So Future Quake Southern Hemisphere group. That's on Facebook. Sorry, back to you there, G. Yes, no, that's cool, because if you go there and search for that, you'll find us, as as most of you will know, that was our old show name. And I think, and we had a group under that name, which is still in existence. And right. uh, we found out that once a group reaches a certain size, you can't change the name of the group. So we couldn't change it to Like Flint Radio. But going back to your reading, no, I'm glad you brought that one along. And I'm very, very happy to have heard that, because some of that makes a lot of sense to me. And now that was your mum that sent you that one. That's right. It was my mum. So thanks, (laughs) mum. Yeah, she sent it through to me. And obviously, I'm pretty sure there are many other things we can add to that list, by the way. But I think that this is a good start to having a look at that and kind of going, look, what's going on in this part of the church, you know? Mm. Yes, yes. No, exactly. So I'm glad you found that one. So thanks, Andy's mum, and thank you for reading that. (laughs) Anyway, let's move on to our fourth and final flake. What are we doing here, Andy? What's next? Well, we're going to go to Cruzy's Corner, and um, this particular flint flake, Cruzy sent to me a couple of days ago, and he wanted to just do something a little bit different, and so I really do hope that it does encourage you. And bear in mind, he wasn't feeling too well, and so <laughs> I know he, he also mentions that in the flake, but I do hope that it will encourage you. And that we can be encouraged to share Jesus, who is the light of the world, who is God's answer to us in redeeming us to him. And we can share him with others. There's a man going around taking names. And he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden letter 
reaching down when the man comes around. That's Johnny Cash, no relation to Creflo Dollar. Um, I know you tapped your feet to that. I know you did. Well, what are we going to do today? Um, we're going to take a quick run through the whole Bible, plus minus, well, more than 5,000 years. And we're going to do it in hopefully 20 minutes, give and take about 40 minutes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, let's see. let's see if we can do this. Long, long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. Wait, there was no galaxies yet. Let's try again without the melodramatic music. A long, long time ago, when there was no galaxies or universes, there was God. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in six days, God created everything, and on the seventh day, he rested. That's Genesis 1. Genesis 2 we learn about Adam and Eve. God created Adam out of the dust of the ground and placed him in the garden. Then he fashioned Eve from a rib taken from Adam's side. He presented Eve to Adam, who was very pleased indeed. The two become one flesh. They were naked and they were not ashamed. The serpent appears to Eve and deceives her. She eats the fruit, gives it to Adam, and he eats. Eve ate the fruit because she was deceived by the serpent. Adam was not deceived as Eve was. He knew it was wrong, but he ate the fruit anyway. Therefore, God holds him accountable. This was a decisive moment, a great turning point. Nothing will ever be the same. Suddenly they were ashamed. They tried to cover up their nakedness. Innocence was gone forever. When confronted by God, Adam makes excuses. Who told you you were naked? The woman you gave me, of course. First he blames Eve, then he blames God, and Eve blames the serpent. Judgment comes quickly. They are cast out of the Garden of Eden. God clothed them in garments of skin, a sign of His grace. Now they are on their own. The world becomes a very unfriendly place. Cain kills Abel. Civilization spreads. Large cities form. Death is everywhere. That's Genesis 4 and 5. Things go from bad to worse. In Genesis 6, God intervenes. The earth had grown corrupt and full of evil. God calls Noah, who builds an ark. When the flood comes covering the whole earth, only eight people were saved. Thus do we learn of judgment and grace. Now the line narrows to Noah and his family. After the flood, the three sons of Noah spread out and began to multiply. Generations come and go. Eventually, they build a tower to express their enormous, sorry, enormous arrogance. God sends confusion of languages at the Tower of Babel. People scatter across the face of the earth. God calls Abraham. Actually, his name was Abram, but God changed it to Abraham. God promises him his son. But when Abram's wife heard this, she laughed and laughed and laughed because she was really, 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 really old. But God sent Abram a son called Isaac. And God promised Abram that his descendants would be numerous as the stars in the sky. That's a whole lot of people. And that they would be God's special people and show the world who God is. Isaac has a son named Jacob, but God changed his name to Israel. Jacob has many sons, but the most important being Joseph. 
whose brothers didn't like him very much. So they sold him to some passing camel traders, and Joseph ended up in Egypt as a slave. But God blessed Joseph, and eventually he became the second highest ruler in Egypt. His family followed him there. They number 70 people. God blesses them until one day comes a pharaoh that did not know Joseph. For 400 years the people suffered in bondage until God raised up a deliverer named Moses. He goes before Pharaoh and says, Let my people go. When Pharaoh says no, God sends him ten plagues to help him change his mind. The last one was death of the firstborn. So Moses leads the Jews out of Egypt, across the Red Sea and into the desert. At Mount Sinai, God gives the law, starting with the Ten Commandments. You can read that in Exodus 20. At Kadesh Barnea, they sent out twelve men to spy out the land of Canaan. It was a land filled with milk and honey, but they brought back a bunch of grapes to prove it. But because there were giants in the land, ten of the spies said, No, we can't go. But the people did not believe God's promise, and they were sent to wander in the wilderness for forty years. They had no GPS. Then God raised up another leader, Joshua. He leads the people to conquer the land of Canaan, the promised land. And at this time, they trusted God. And God gave them land in amazing ways, like the time they marched around the city of Jericho. They did this for six days, and then seven times on the seventh day. And then they shouted really loud. They must have felt a bit silly there. And the walls of the city came tumbling down. They divided the land for the twelve tribes. Then comes the wild period of the judges, where every man did what was right in his own eyes. You know some of them. Gideon, Samson, Barak. The story of Ruth belongs in this period. God led his people by prophets, priests, and judges. Some of the judges were a bit strange, but God still used them, like Ehud, who was left-handed. Imagine that. He also killed the king of Moab, and a very fat guy called Eglon, whose rolls of fat covered up the sword after Ehud struck him on the body, and Deborah, whose friend put a tent peg through the enemy enemy's king's temple, and Samson, who let his girlfriend cut off his head to make him weak, and Gideon, who tested God by asking him to do miracles with a sheepskin fleece and the rain. And so it went on for quite a few years. Then the people decided they didn't like having God as their king, and they wanted to be like all the other countries around them and have a king of their own. So God gave them Saul, who started out well but ended badly. Then came David, whose victory over Goliath made the woman sing his praises. Later, David's reign would be tarnished because of his sin with Bathsheba. Then came Solomon, the king who asked God for wisdom. He built a magnificent temple in Jerusalem, but he married foreign women who turned his heart away from God. That's 1 Kings 11. Priests offered sacrifices day after day, year after year. A river of blood flowed from the altar. High priests came and went. After Solomon's death, the nation split into two parts. The northern ten tribes were led by a string of evil kings. They were taken into captivity in 722 BC. The southern two tribes had a few good kings. They lasted until 586 BC when the Babylonians took them into captivity. The prophets brought God's message of warning and hope. 
Isaiah spoke of sufferings of the suffering servant. Jeremiah wept for his people. Daniel explained the handwriting on the wall. The people of God languished in, languished in exile for 70 long years. It was a hard, humiliating time for the Jews. Finally, God raised up two key men. The first was Zerubbabel, who led a small group back to Jerusalem at the end of the 70 years. In 445 BC, Nehemiah built the walls around Jerusalem. Sometime after that, Malachi the prophet gave his message from the Lord. The Old Testament closes with a sense of longing and expectation. Promises has been made, the prophets have spoken, the people were waiting, there was silence. Then one day, in a most unlikely way, in a most unlikely place, when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son. An angel appeared to a young girl called Mary and told her she was going to have a baby, which was all very nice except she was a virgin. But the angel told her that the child would be born of the Holy Spirit, God's son, Emmanuel. That means God with us. And that's exactly what happened. Mary had a baby called Jesus, and the shepherds and the wise men came to worship him. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, not just any baby, but the seed of the woman, the son of David. Then the angel told Joseph, Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. But the ruler of the land wanted to kill him. So Mary and Joseph had to run away, to Egypt of all places, to hide out for a few years until it was safe to come back. Jesus was baptized by John, tempted by the devil, misunderstood by religious leaders, and feared by some, hated by others, but the common people still heard him gladly. He was full of grace and truth. He was the fullness of God in bodily form. The Bible says he went around doing good. He caused the blind to see, made the deaf to hear, cast out demons, healed the sick, and raised the dead. He invited all that was weary to come to him for rest. He taught God's law, embodied God's love, and fulfilled God's promises. He preached to the masses, and he spoke in parables. He is a friend of sinners everywhere. Repeatedly, he tells the twelve disciples that he will be betrayed into the hands of sinful men who will beat him and they will crucify him. He tells them that after three days he will rise from the dead. They do not understand. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays in agony. Judas betrays him, Peter denies him, the disciples abandon him. Caiaphas accuses him, Herod mocks him, the soldiers beat him. Pilate eventually condemns him to death. He is crucified between two criminals, and he cries out, Father, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then he cries out, It is finished. Finally he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Then he breathed out his last breath. He was buried in a tomb. One day he was dead, two days he was dead. But on the third day, two women went to the tomb to anoint his dead body. They found the stone rolled away and the tomb empty. An angel said, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. The word began to spread. He is alive. Over 40 days Jesus appeared to his disciples many times. His message is, God is glorified. I am alive. Redemption is accomplished. Go and tell everyone. Then he ascended into heaven. 
Then some angels appeared and told the disciples not to freak out because Jesus would come back again just as he said he would. For ten days the disciples waited and prayed. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came in great power. With the sound of a mighty rushing wind, with tongues of fire, the disciples speak in foreign languages they did not know. Peter preaches, and three thousand are saved in one day. The church is born in Jerusalem and grows amid much opposition. But there is one Jew called Saul, who wasn't very happy about any of this. So unhappy, in fact, that he went around persecuting the church and killing people who followed Jesus, until one day, when Saul was just minding his own business as he walked to Damascus, he met the risen Lord Jesus, who completely changed his life. He became a preacher of the good news and changed his name to Paul, traveled all around the world telling people about Jesus. He started churches. He wrote letters to some of these churches in Galatia, Philippi, Corinth, Thessalonica, telling them how to live now that they were followers of Jesus. What Paul got for his travels was to be put in prison for being a follower of Jesus. And lots of other disciples were killed for what they believed in. While all this was going on, another disciple called John, who was going around preaching the good news about Jesus, became the leader of the churches, and he became known as an elder because he was really, really old. And he wrote some letters to the churches telling them how to live as followers of Jesus, and he got himself into a whole lot of trouble too. So he was sent to live on an island called Patmos, that's in the middle of nowhere. This was so that he couldn't tell anyone else about Jesus. But while he was there, he had an amazing vision called Revelation, in which God told him what would happen in the future when Jesus comes back, and promised him that it would be soon. This completes the New Testament. When Jesus came the first time, he was the Lamb of God. When he comes again, he will be the Lion of the tribe of Judah. When Christ finally appears for the second time, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and the glory of God the Father. Well, that was it in about 15 minutes. Uh, I think we did quite well there. Um, I hope you guys will excuse the bit of a flu that I've got and a bit of bronchitis, um, and I'm sure I'll be better next time. Just to add one more thing, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, you and me, we are sinners. We cannot pay the price for our own sins. The Bible says the penalty for our sins is death. Jesus came so that we can escape that penalty. We do not have to pay the price for our own sins. That is why he died on the cross in place of us. What you make with that gospel story is the most important decision you will ever make. And I pray that you make the right one. And until next time, guys, we'll see you again. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. There's a man going round taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. 
Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down. Well, that was different for a cruisy's corner, wasn't it, Andy? <laughs> Uh, some people are going to ask if he's not feeling well. I mean, last time we were discussing Joyce Meyer, and um, but anyway, no, that was really good. So thanks, Cruzy. Get well, mate, and we'll be praying for you. Yeah, and we certainly missed your jokes, Cruzy. I'm sorry I didn't. Absolutely, because Andy's were terrible. <laughs> sorry, but they were terrible. I just I can't do what you do, Cruzy. So sorry about <laughs> that. <laughs> um, so we're out of here, Andy. <laughs> yeah. Ta-da! <laughs> All right. God oh. bless. Thank you. Great to be with you guys, and we'll see you guys soon. And it's Huru from the Guru. See you later. <laughs> Ta-da. Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our show. You can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com. That's M-A-I-L at lightflintradio.com. <laughs>